Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, economyofone.com, economyofone.com, as is our Facebook. Joining me now is Peter Ireland. He's a professor of economics at Boston College, research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. He's also worked at the Federal Reserve Banks in Richmond and Boston, as well as for the Federal Reserve Board as a visiting scholar. Peter, welcome to An Economy of One. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me on your show. I uh, appreciate you coming on. You know, many of our listeners has never heard of the Shadow Open Market Committee, and anything with the word shadow in it has kind of an ominous connotation to it. Tell us what the SOMC uh, is and, and what you do there. That's a good point, Gary. Actually, shadow has a different connotation than it once did. Mm-hmm. Shadow Open Market Committee was a group of economists uh, founded in uh, the early 1970s. Uh, and the shadow part of the Shadow Open Market Committee is a reference to the shadow cabinet in the British system. So the idea was to have a group of independent uh, economists who would monitor the Federal Reserve, the Federal Open Market Committee, and kind of serve as a, an alternative critical voice from the outside. So what we do, we meet a couple times a year, comment on what the Fed is doing, give our own views and uh that that's the basic idea you know in your years of scholarly work and working with the federal reserve how different is the federal reserve today and their dual mandate than in decades past i know in 1913 when the federal reserve came into existence it, it was really a different organization than it is today that's absolutely true Well, the starting point for the dual mandate has to be the act of Congress that gave the Fed the dual mandate. So on one level, we can't really criticize Chair Yellen for 
talking about the dual mandate, other Federal Reserve officials for talking about unemployment and inflation. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, what certainly has changed, and this is what worries me and other members of the Shadow Open Market Committee, is the emphasis of the uh, the Fed's emphasis or shifting emphasis uh, on the two sides of the dual mandate. Whereas under Volcker and Greenspan, the idea was the Fed creates an environment of stable prices, of low inflation, and then allows the free market to act efficiently to create full employment. Today's Fed is much more focused on unemployment and inflation, when it's mentioned, it's mentioned second. And the problem with that is that it raises expectations that the Fed then can't really deliver on. We know that monetary policy can't really create new jobs. Printing money is not the solution to high unemployment. And by emphasizing unemployment again and again in public statements, uh, I think the Fed in the end confuses the public and sets the public up to be disappointed in the Fed. That being said, what needs to be changed in those mandates? Uh, Should there be mandates, I guess, first of all? And what should the mandates be? I mean, it's obviously a little bit flawed from an inflation and full employment standpoint. What should the, the mandates from Congress be for the Federal Reserve? That's a great question. Well, first of all, there should definitely be a mandate. The Federal Reserve was a creation of Congress, and although institutional structures are in place to insulate Federal Reserve officials from day-to-day political pressures, they should still be accountable to the American people. And the way that they should be made accountable to the American people is through our representatives in the House and in the Senate. So it should be Congress that decides on the objectives of monetary policy and then leave it up to Federal Reserve officials and their expert advisors to figure out how to best achieve the goals. As far as a a new mandate is concerned, I like the way that um, recent legislation that was uh, proposed in the House of Representatives last year, and undoubtedly some version of that will uh, return this year as well. I like the way that uh, that legislation was phrased, putting stabilizing inflation, keeping inflation low and stable, first and foremost on the list of the Federal Reserve's goals, and again, making clear that by creating that environment of price stability, the Federal Reserve will be encouraging the private sector to create the jobs that achieve full employment. How does the Federal Reserve, how does it work in stabilizing prices? I mean, how do you stabilize prices by increasing or tightening the money supply through interest rates or balance sheet assets. I mean, we got a lot of got a lot of assets on the balance sheet now that they could use to essentially affect the same effect in the economy as interest rates, but if one of their their mandates is to moderate price uh, spikes or movements, how do they do that? That's a good question as well. The easiest way to think about it is to think about prices economy-wide in the United States are measured in terms of dollars. Mm -hmm. And 
so if you flip that around, the value of a dollar is going to depend on the supply of money relative to goods. So if the Federal Reserve is unsatisfied with the rate of inflation being too high, like it was in the 1970s, the prescription is to take actions that reduce the growth rate of money. And conversely, if the Fed is worried about inflation being too low, and that's a concern you have to take seriously. That was a problem in the United States during the Great Depression, and low inflation has been seen as a threat more recently. In that case, the goal should be to take actions that accelerate the growth rate of money. Going from 1913 to now, something that I I see a lot of, I, I, I read a lot about, and the Federal Reserve in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten years has injected a lot of money into the system. But yet, worldwide, people still want dollars. I mean, it's we're not acting, I don't think, the Fed acts in a vacuum like it, it did in 1913. Not that it acted in a vacuum there, but I, I think you know what I mean. I, the, the global impact of dollars is much different today than it has been in in years past. And it seems to me like we should have a lot more inflation with all the money that's been injected and the low interest rates, but we really haven't had that much inflation. Is it because of the the global demand for dollars and, the, and being the reserve currency? I think that may be part of it. But another aspect that you didn't mention is that a lot of the dollars that the Fed created during that period of quantitative easing or bond buying is still tied up in the banking system. It hasn't found its way into the economy as a whole. Why is that? In 2008, the Fed began paying banks interest on their reserves, on the idle cash that they hold themselves as opposed to lending out so that it can circulate in the economy. There are good reasons, perhaps, why the Federal Reserve might want to compensate banks for uh, their holdings of reserves in the same way that you and I, as ordinary depositors, earn interest on our savings. And yet, you have to wonder, If the problem is low inflation and if the problem is trying to lean so hard on the system, buying more and more bonds to bring inflation back to target, does it really make sense to be paying banks interest on their reserves? I see. Okay. So then if, you know, there's been a little talk, not a lot, but a little talk recently about the Federal Reserve shrinking its balance sheet. Now, shrinking some of those assets on the balance sheet, will that inject money into the system or take money out and and make it tighter? That's a good question as well. Well, as economists like to say, all else equal, it will probably make monetary policy tighter because it does involve a withdrawal of cash from the economy. On the other hand, to the extent that the money is simply being held in the banking system now anyway, in a sense, it, it probably it, it, it may not matter that much for the economy as a whole. Okay. And to the extent that it allows the Fed to reduce its footprint, so to speak, in the financial system, I think it may be a good idea. Okay. Well, we've been speaking with Peter Ireland. He's a professor of economics at Boston College, research associate of the National Bureau 
of Economic Research and a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. Peter, this has been a real treat for me. First time we've been able to uh, speak, and I wish I had about uh, an hour and a half more of your time. So uh, I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again sometime soon and, and continue the conversation. You sure can. Thanks again, Gary. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good evening. Coming up next, we'll spend a little time talking about currency manipulation. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, one of the things that uh, comes up in headlines from time to time is currency manipulation. We see that in China a lot, where they manipulate the value of their currency in exchange for other currencies uh, around the world. Uh, it, It came up recently from Japan, trying to manipulate their currency a little bit. I wanted to spend a little time around that so that you understand what currency manipulation is, why countries do it, how they do it, and uh, if it's real or not. Now, prior to 1971, prior to August 15th, 1971, we were on a, a system since World War II called the Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods pegged the dollar to the price of gold. So it was essentially a gold-based valuation. Then everybody else in the world pegged their currency to the dollar because the dollar was pegged to hard asset, gold. In August of 1971, President Nixon took us off the gold standard. In other words, prior to 1971, under Bretton Woods, uh, an ounce of gold was worth $35. And an ounce of gold had been worth $35 since FDR. Back in the 30s, FDR essentially made it illegal to own gold, personally, and had everybody turn in their gold to federal banks at the rate of $20 per ounce. Once that activity or confiscation, whatever term you want to use on that, was done... Roosevelt immediately raised the valuation of gold to $35 an ounce, giving everybody uh, a big inflation hit, realistically, on their dollars. That was the time Fort Knox was created to hold all this gold that was turned in. But Nixon took us off that, and what that did is that put us on a fiat system. A fiat, F-I-A-T, money system means that the dollar or your currency is simply backed by the government of the country of issue. Now, everybody in the world still pegs their currency against dollars, but they can no longer exchange those dollars for gold. People were taking dollars in trade through our imports and exports, and then they would exchange them for gold out of our gold reserves. And it really didn't allow us as a country to run huge deficits without any checks or balances. So Nixon took us off the gold standard and that allowed us, because it's all fiat now, to essentially print 
whatever money we wanted. So the Federal Reserve became very important in the 70s because they got the printing presses. They can print money anytime they want. Currency manipulation worldwide is beneficial to a country that wants to export a lot of product. So China exports a lot of product. So it benefits them to devalue the renminbi against the dollar because that makes their exports cheaper on the world market with other currencies. The American dollar, which is the world's reserve currency, has been getting stronger and stronger the last few years, and that has hurt our exports. However, it's made our imports a little cheaper because the dollar is worth more. We can trade it for more stuff. We have to be careful of this. When President Trump talks about China manipulating their currency, that's absolutely true. We know they do it. They know we know they do it. So it's out there. And we have to factor that into the equation. There's nothing you and I can do about it. China isn't going to take a postcard from us saying, don't do that anymore. But where we have to be careful is these people that want us to go on a global currency. You've heard that people want us off the dollar standard, want the world off the dollar standard, and go to SDRs through the International Monetary Fund. And SDR is a special drawing right. And a special drawing right is based on the valuation of several currencies at different percentage weights. Sounds complex? It is. But that's one more step from the global standpoint of damaging our economy and damaging our currency. We're the richest country in the world. We're the largest economy in the world by far. China's number two, but they're not close. People like to play with the equation and inflation adjust it and that kind of stuff and say they've surpassed us. They haven't. We are number one and will be for a long time. By being number one, it's very important that our currency maintain integrity. And if we went on a global currency like everybody else or with everybody else, that would impugn the integrity of the dollar, and we would be the most to suffer. That would bring our economy down to essentially third world country level. We would not have the economic power globally that we do now. I got no problem being number one. I got no problem being the leader in the world. I'll take that responsibility. I want to be number one. I want America to be number one economically. Coming up next, we're going to speak with Anthony Kim. He's from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk to him about his economic freedom index. We'll talk to him next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
Joining me now is Anthony B. Kim. He's a senior policy analyst for economic freedom in Heritage's Center for Trade and Economics. He's a research manager and co-editor of Heritage Foundation's annual Index of Economic Freedom. He's had commentary published by numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, and the Washington Times. Anthony, welcome to An Economy of One. Thanks for having me, Gary. My pleasure. I appreciate it. I I, uh, was reading a bunch of your stuff and read through the 2017 Index of Economic Freedom and saw we dropped down a notch or two, and I told my producer, I said, give Anthony a call, see if we can (laughs) put him on the spot here at uh, the work you've done at the Heritage Foundation. Let's start with exactly what is the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom, the criteria you use for scoring countries. Excellent question to begin with our discussion today. Uh, The Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom is basically a global policy guide that tracks uh, countries' economic policy and measure um, investment and entrepreneurial environments. So it's about how easy to do a business and how easy to invest. So it's a really global uh, trade and investment policy tool. But how do you determine the entrepreneurial environment? I I mean, is it regulatory? Is it taxes? Is it just general attitude of the populace and and politicians? That's got to be a little bit subjective on your part, doesn't it? You got it right, but uh, we are trying to minimize that subjectivity and maximize objectivity here in our annual study. So in order to do it, uh, we are not doing this in a kind of random, you know, computation assignment. We are doing this with the data. So this is a data-driven analysis and global study. And we have our so-called four pillars of economic freedom. So we look at factors related to a rule of law, factors related to government size, uh, which means, you know, government spending, fiscal Mm -hmm. policy, public debt level, and also factors related to to, uh, open markets, trade policy, investment freedom, uh, financial freedom. And also regulatory efficiency. You mentioned regulations. I mean, it's a very important portion of economic freedom, overall economic competitiveness. So we look at business uh, regulation, labor regulation, and monetary policy as well. From the United States standpoint, how negative did the Affordable Care Act, how negative is $20 trillion of national debt? Because, I mean, we got fairly low reported unemployment, and right. you, you and I both know that's that's not quite accurate. But the <laughs> national debt and the Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank legislation, does all of that beat us down a little bit on the scale? Correct. I mean, it's not a worded question at all. I mean, that's a fact-based question, I think, because mm-hmm. what happened to us over the past decade, I mean, in fact, you know, uh, since 2008, We've been losing our economic freedom, meaning we've been losing our economic dynamism. Uh, President Obama, over the past eight years, he's been doubling down the trend line here. So as we know well, as we feel well, tax burden, regulatory burden uh, through you know this Affordable Care Act, it hasn't been affordable at all in a way. Right. And also we've been self-injuring ourselves with bad policies, basically Washington first, uh, big government-driven policies. 
it's been killing our entrepreneurship. Uh, that's why I think we have a very low level of startup companies nowadays. Uh, our innovative capacity, the purse of American entrepreneurism, has been eroding. One of your pillars uh, that you talked about is social progress. Does that include, you know, like our educational system, our graduation rate, our, our going on to college rate? I mean, what is the social progress pillar of your study? Uh, one minor clarification. Uh, in fact, uh, that is not one of our pillars. Uh, the oh, social okay. progress, that's something we uh, uh, correlate with our overall index economic freedom score. So you okay. raised a very good question because if you correlate, if you study, look into the relationship between economic freedom and social progress, not surprisingly, you see high correlation, meaning greater economic freedom means higher social progress. So our index is mainly about economic policy, but if you have greater economic freedom, therefore economic dynamism, you see this greater social progress in terms of mobility, in terms of really uh, moving on to a uh, next level. I mean, this is really greater opportunity generating process. My whole theme is the individual and, and laissez-faire uh, economy and capitalism and that kind of stuff. So economic freedom, I mean, there's no question that that's, that's our, our backbone. That's our foundation stone uh, in America. You talk to any politician, any Washington politician, they will agree uh, right. with all these statements. How come <laughs> they don't do anything about it? Excellent question, Gary. I mean, that's the problem. We, I guess, we had had over the past eight years, you know, very dramatic way. You know, they, mm -hmm. they tend to understand. I mean, they seem to understand. They seem to talk about those issues. But in reality, in practice, I mean, what they've done is really opposite from what they've been saying. So in a way, I think what's ahead of us is really a unique new opportunity. This is time to undo those bad policies and really restore our economic freedom with people's will. And we're going to do make things happen. Uh, here at the Harris Foundation, we have a solid game plan uh, in terms of how to really re-energize re -energize American economy with free market policies. You talk about a, a mandate for leadership. You talk about this this blueprint that you guys put together, and it, I looked at it. It's pretty extensive. You got a couple hundred pages there uh, mm -hmm. to read through. What, uh, if you can, give me uh, some of the the key bullet points mm -hmm. that we need to be educated about. We need to learn about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think we got to uphold our principled uh, ideas, which means individual liberty, mm. limited government, free enterprise. I mean, you mentioned your show, the free enterprise, entrepreneurship, they're the backbone of your show. Mm -hmm. That same spirit and that same principle should be the backbone of American economy. I mean, we used to have that, but somehow uh, we eroded those principles and values with the bad policies. So in a nutshell, what we are trying to advocate is let's go back to our founding principles, limited government, free enterprise, individual liberty. Whatever policy solution we will be proposing will be based on those principled values so that we can really restore American economic dynamism. How do we do it? First, let's tame the government spending. We've been doing a lot of wasteful government spending 
in the name of helping, in the name of rescuing our economy. But we know what happened. Once again, Washington first, people second, big government mindset has been killing our economy. Now, how important is not only President Trump being elected at this particular time in our history, but how important is he and how important is it that we essentially have somebody who understands entrepreneurialism, that understands making payroll and hiring people and building businesses and companies? Is this a a pivotal point, a tipping point in our history where we have an opportunity because somebody so different has come into the White House? Absolutely. I tend to agree with your assessment. This is a pivotal moment of our nation. I mean, again, we have had the same team over the eight years. Now, if we had the other candidate as a president, we will probably see the continuation of that policy. Now, let's be clear. I think people wanted a change, and that's why we have a President Trump. Mm-hmm. And we need to see all the details as we go. But the bottom line is, this is kind of kind of time to reset our economic policy. Let's take a step back and take a serious look what has been done. And now it's time to undo those bad policies and double down good policies. So again, it's a bit too early to be confident, but the good news is that you know we now have this newly founded momentum, momentum for new opportunity. I guess this is time to realize that opportunity with our, our demand, demand for greater economic freedom, demand for greater economic, you know, good policies, better mm-hmm. policies. And let's make things happen together. But I guess this is time to be cautiously optimistic. And then um, let's let's make America great again, in a way, as he's been saying. <laughs> I've heard that phrase before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with Anthony Kim. He's a research manager and co-editor of Heritage Foundation's annual index, of economic freedom. Now, Anthony, we got a couple minutes left. United States ranks 17th mm-hmm. in, in the 2017 index. Uh, we're not in the top tier. Switzerland's up there, Australia, mm-hmm. uh, even Canada's up there. Yeah. yeah, Are they ahead of us because they have better policies than us and we should adopt those policies? Or are their, their policies just less bad than what we should adopt to move up the scale. We should be number one. I, I just, I, I don't understand why we're 17. I mean, I do. I'm on the, I'm on the same page with you. It's not acceptable outcome we have here. I mean, we've got to be, you know, at least one of those top 10 freest economies, but we've been losing, you know, our ground because of our bad policies, self-inflicted wound in a way. Mm-hmm. So those countries, I mean, they're compatible advanced economies uh, to the United States, but what they have better is on many fronts, for example, tax policy. Let's look at our corporate tax rate. While we are killing our business here with a high corporate tax rate, these countries, Canada, Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, they all have much lower corporate tax rate. Regulations, yes, they do have uh, regulations, but they happen to be more sensible and they happen to be not job killing. But here, over the past eight years, We've been having layers of layers of regulations. So there are things that we can undo. Uh, there are things that we can free our economy at the same time. 
that are things that we can adopt in terms of uh, promoting and advancing our overall competitiveness. So it's a combination of those two, but the bottom line is this is time for change. This is time for serious change. I see that we're ranked under the category of mostly free. And I think if every American was asked the question, would you like to be free or mostly free, I think we know what the answer would be on that. Mostly Absolutely. free is is not in our makeup and, and not in our DNA. So mm -hmm. uh, we've been speaking with Anthony Kim. He's Senior Policy Analyst for Economic Freedom and Heritage's Center for Trade and Economics and co-editor of Heritage Foundation's Annual Index of Economic Freedom. Well, Anthony, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, it's the first time we, we've had the opportunity to uh, chat and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Very knowledgeable. I love the work you guys at Heritage are, are doing, and I hope we can uh, call you up again soon and, and continue the conversation. You bet. It was my pleasure, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and your audience. Very good. Thanks, Anthony. Coming up next, we're going to take a little bit closer look at payday loans and check cashing companies and see if they're really as bad as the press tells us. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Are payday loans and, and check cashing places really, really the evil, evil, greedy, capitalistic thing that the press makes them out to be? Well, fact is they're not. People have uh, been studying this on the inside recently and given us some new insights. The prevailing wisdom is that customers would be better served, better treated by using a bank rather than a check cashing company. Well, by being inside that, they found out that that's not the case. An Ivy League professor went in and spent four months working on the other side of the counter just to see what was going on and what the people were thinking. We assume because you and I wouldn't pay that fee because we're used to using banks, we use banks all day, every day, that poor people or people who use check cashing stores just aren't as smart as we are and they don't know what's best for them. Fact is, they know better than we do about stretching a dollar, getting the most bang for their buck, and they use these. And the, the, the most common reasons that uh, was cited by people who use check cashing stores was the cost of working at a bank, working with a bank, transparency with the bank, and service. So, you know, there are people that are unbankable or underbanked that use money orders for everything, use a lot of cash, that kind of stuff. But the world revolves on checks and transfers. We know that. Well, a check cashing store, for example, you can go in there and cash a check and immediately get cash. You ever do that at a bank? If you don't have an account at the bank, they won't cash the check for you. And if you don't have enough money in your account to cover the check you're depositing, they won't give you enough, uh, they won't give you any money for it. They got to wait for it to clear. Check cashing stores 
you know, they charge about a buck and a half to pay a bill, uh, about 89 cents to buy a money order, and about uh, just under 2% to uh, cash a check, 2% of the face value. Now, once again, that sounds like a lot to cash a check, 2%. But sometimes, oftentimes, they pale in comparison to unexpected charges at a bank, maintenance fees, overdraft fees. All of these fees add up. Some of us, uh, we, we really don't look at them. We don't think about them. I know I don't because I, I never have overdraft fees. I, I, I never use money orders. Do you ever buy a money order at a bank? Sometimes it's as high as 5 or $10. Some of these stores only charge $0.89 cents for a money order. So there is a cost factor in there. Some people are small business owners, and they're, they're running on a shoestring. They're running on a time shoestring, and when they get paid in a check, they need that cash right away to pay their employees, to pay their suppliers, all kinds of stuff. Check cashing store allows that. Transparencies. You don't know what you're paying necessarily at a bank at any given time. But with a check cashing store, it's right there on the wall. You know what the fees are before you do it. And finally, service. These people use these check cashing stores over and over and over again, build a relationship with the people behind the counter. They get to know them by name, what they do, they're very loyal to those stores. Do those stores make money, cash and checks? Sure they do. But think of what they do. A bank will hold a check five, three, five, seven days before they release the funds. These people release the funds immediately. There is risk in that. The check might not clear and, and they may have to have to go after it. The fact is that people that use payday loans, use check cashing stores, pretty much know exactly what they're doing. They know how to stretch a dollar. They know how to get the most bang for their buck, no pun intended. Eh, let's go with pun intended. Banks want one customer with a million dollars. Check cashers want a million customers with one dollar. So waiting for your money like you do at a bank uh, can cost people uh, jobs, can cost them contracts, it can cost them a lot of money if they don't have other reserves. Now, are there some bad players in this field? Of course there are. Of course there are. There's bad players in every field. But for the most part, there's a need in the market, and payday loan companies and check cashing companies fill that need. They did a study in the United States military. Military people use payday loans quite often. And what they found was there are very few negative effects for people in the Army using payday loans. Once again, there's always somewhere there's going to be a negative effect. Always something bad happens with some people and some companies. They're greedy. They try ripping people off. <clears throat> but generally speaking, word gets around very quickly, and those people will eventually go out of business. The thing with Congress and the government making laws prohibiting these assume 
that these people that use these services don't know what's best for them and that the business owners are exploiting them. The fact is, if they ever got down and mingled among us real people, they'd find out a totally different story. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. See you next time. This is The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.